Welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode we travel to a different possible or not so possible tomorrow. Before we start this week, I just wanted to thank everybody who took the listener survey and talk about a few things that came up in it. So one big thing that many of you said was that there are these weird long pauses in the episodes. Here I was thinking that I was doing this fancy sound design with these low ambient sound beds that I was designing, but apparently you cannot hear them. So they just sound like really big pauses. So I will cut that out and hopefully the pauses will go away. Sorry about that. Another thing that a lot of people asked about is why there is now a musical break in the middle of the show. The reason that that's there, and this is a little bit of inside baseball podcast stuff, but basically I now have ads on the show. And some of those ads get placed in the middle of the show. They're called mid-roll ads. And they're dynamic, so that means that I put a little marker where the ad goes, and different ads get dropped in at different times. So if I don't have the musical break, sometimes you just get this boom ad right in the middle, and it can get kind of weird. And some of you actually noticed that on an earlier episode before I was doing the musical stuff. So this is just kind of a solution to make sure that an ad doesn't just pop up in the middle of nowhere and be very confusing. So that's why the music is there. I'm trying to come up with a more elegant solution, but for now, that is what that is. Okay, two last things. Um, I asked what kinds of rewards that I might be able to offer you to entice you to donate to the show. Thank you to everyone who donates. You keep the show alive. And a lot of you actually put things in that question that I already offer on Patreon, which means that I have not done a good job telling you what the rewards are. So let me just tell you what they are now. If you donate $1 an episode, you will get access to transcripts and bonus full interviews from certain futures. If you donate $2 an episode, you get access to all of that and a special fan-only newsletter that is full of links and often pictures of my dog. If you donate $5 an episode, you get all of those things and every other week you get a short story about a future that we've traveled to. If you are a $5 person, those stories are coming to you soon. I'm a little bit behind, but you'll get some this week. And if you donate $10 an episode, you get all of those things and your voice gets to be in a future scene. Okay, last thing, transcripts. Enough of you said that you would like transcripts of the show that I'm going to start posting them online. I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to do this yet because I want them to be easy to read and not super cumbersome, but in the next couple of weeks, you'll get transcripts of at least this season's episodes. Okay, enough blah 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 from me about all that stuff. Let's go to the future. Let's start this episode in the year 2099. Hello there, Kara. Welcome to school today. I hope you're ready to learn. Today we are going to continue our lessons on trigonometry. Did you watch the homework video? Hello, Kara. Let's continue our lessons on American history. Please upload your essay on reparations to the portal. Hello, Kara. I have read your essay on reparations. Let's discuss. Please turn on your webcam. We have identified some key points in your essay for discussion. It seems that perhaps you did not do some of the assigned reading. Did you read the Atlantic essay in your homework packet? Let's go over it together. We'll start at page 3 of the assigned essay. Hello Kara, we haven't detected any movement in front of the screen in a while. Are you still there? Hello Kara, your tracker indicates that you haven't been at the computer during lessons. We have reset all lessons marked complete while you were not here. Do you remember having a human teacher? What was the best thing about human teachers? Uh, playing with Mrs. Lloyd and um, 
that Mrs. Louie helps us. And that she um, gives us uh, ice packs when we bonked our head. Yeah. How cool is that? Um, that they love me. I like that they love me. Okay. She, she's very kind. Do you like me? No. Mm, half and half. Hello, Kara. A new version of the Learn Future software is now available. Would you like to update now? Remember, your regional exam is tomorrow. You still have 12 lessons to complete in order to be ready for the exam. Hello, Kara. Our records indicate that you missed the regional exam. Without this test, you cannot move on in your education. Education is the key to your future. Hello, Kara. It has been 34 days since you logged on to your lessons portal. Are you still there? Education is the key to your future. Education, Education is the key, is the key to, to your future. future. Education, Education is the key to your future. Okay, so today's future is one without schools. One in which everybody learns everything online or at a computer kiosk, guided by algorithms and pre-made lessons and artificial intelligence. And I want to start this future with a story from Georgia Tech. If you were a master's student at Georgia Tech this past spring, you might have taken a class called Knowledge-Based Artificial Intelligence. It's this online class, and there are about 300 students that take it. And because it's an online class, the students rely on this online forum to post their assignments, have discussions, all of that stuff. And one of the things that they use this online forum for is asking the TAs questions. Everything from, when is this assignment due, to, what is the nature of artificial intelligence? Normally, there are nine or ten TAs, and they hang out on the forum, and they answer these questions. But this spring, one of those TAs was not a human. Should we be aiming for 1,000 or 2,000 words? I know it's variable, but that's a big difference. There isn't a word limit, but we will grade on both depth and succinctness. It is important to explain your design in enough detail so that other can get a clear overview of your approach. It's also important to keep things clear and short. This is Jill Watson. Yes, Watson, like the supercomputer. So we started on, on this uh, journey almost exactly a year back. I think it was in May or June of 2015 that we first started thinking about this. Um, I had already done some work with Watson for a different project, so I was familiar with Watson. And that is Jill's creator, I guess, Ashok Gol, a computer science professor at Georgia Tech. And I have been teaching this online course since fall of 2014, so for two years, and I knew that the number of questions that students were raising were really, the teaching staff was um, answering all of those questions, but it was taking a lot of time and effort to, to, to do that. Ashok says that a lot of the questions that students ask on these forums are pretty much the same. When is this due? How long should it be? Where is this assignment? I can't find the material I need. That kind of stuff. And TAs have to spend their time answering these questions, which the students do need to know, but that also just kind of takes a lot of time and isn't super interesting. So he figured, why not have an AI do it? So they got all the questions that students have ever asked in this class. And there are usually about 10,000 posts every semester that this is offered on this online forum. And they fed those questions and answers to a computer system powered by, yes, IBM's Watson. And once they were sure that Jill would not go rogue and answer questions incorrectly, willy-nilly, they let her loose on the students. But they never told the students that Jill wasn't a human. Can we build an AI so that 
the AI that was sophisticated enough that students couldn't tell the difference between the responses coming from a human TA and AI TA. Um, and that was part of the reason why we didn't, did not tell students right from the beginning that Jill Watson was an AI, because we wanted to see whether, you know, students would be able to figure it out. So this TA went along answering student questions. It's fine if your agent takes a few minutes to run. If it's going to take more than 15 minutes to run, please leave notes in the submission about how long we should expect it to take. We can't have all the projects taking a long time because we have to run them in a reasonable period of time. And then at the end of the semester, once all the finals were turned in, Ashok revealed this secret to the students. And he was kind of nervous about it. He didn't know how they were going to react. We were actually very concerned. We, were, we did not know whether the class would view this positively or negatively. Um, we, were, we thought that students may say, what? You mean we have been dealing with AI all of this time? How dare you? You know, that kind of reaction. But the students were actually really into it. The response turned out to be not only positive, but uniformly positive and overwhelmingly positive. It was like a wow kind of thing. Um, and people, uh, students were thrilled with it. So Ashok has plans to do this again. And, and I don't know how much I want to share with you, and not because I don't want to share with you, but because you will put it on a podcast and I don't want students to necessarily know about it. So <laughs> I, it's, it's not from you that I'm trying to hide, it's from the students that I don't want to share all the things. This fall, Ashok will teach the same class, but this time he says that the students will know that not all of the TAs are human. He's going to change the name. They won't be named Jill, but there will be some TAs that are AIs and some that are human. I don't know the exact number yet, but I can share with you that more than one of them will be an avatar of Jill. We'll just tell these students, some are human, some are AIs. You deal with it, you figure out which one is a human, which one is the AI. And I'm curious how long does it take them to figure out? And to go to your question, I'm even more curious, will the kind of questions they ask and will the interactions they have change as compared to what happened in spring or what happened last year? Now, in a lot of the media reports that I read about this Jill Watson thing, writers characterized this as a prank, that Ashok pulled a prank on his students. He does not see it that way. Uh, I did not think of this as a prank at all. As a teacher, pulling a prank on my students is, would be completely unprofessional. I would never, ever do that. No, Ashok does not see this as a prank. He sees it as the future. And there are tons of companies out there working on this kind of future, a future in which computers and algorithms take over the classroom. Some companies see computers as helping human teachers, augmenting them. Others see computers doing the vast majority of teaching itself. And one of the key terms that I encountered when I was researching all of this is something called adaptive learning, this idea that you use an algorithm to tailor lessons to the individual child's skill set. This is how an app called Dreambox works. So if you and I were second graders and Dreambox wanted to understand how well we could group numbers, Dreambox might say, use the virtual math rack to build the number 37. Dreambox is a math learning app, and that is Jesse Willie Wilson, the president and CEO of the company. And let's say you have better math skills than I. So you, Rose, would say, I want to build some tens. You take five individual beads, you cluster them into a five, you do that twice to make a ten, you do that process three times, and then you take an individual set of five and then two individual beads, and in literally four or five moves, you build the number 37. I, on the other hand, take 37 individual beads and move them over individually. 
I get 37 right and you get 37 right. But I clearly didn't know how to group numbers effectively. I didn't demonstrate that I understood that. So should you and I have the same next lesson? In Dreambox, that would never happen. In fact, Dreambox takes it even a step further. Dreambox would be monitoring me while I was thinking and while I was trying to solve the problem. It would recognize that I was not on track for doing any kind of grouping, let alone efficient grouping. It would pull me out of the lesson before I got frustrated, before maybe my confidence was eroded. And it would move me earlier into the lesson, reintroduce me to effective grouping strategies, and then give me another problem and another opportunity to be successful. So, right, adaptive learning basically means that the computer learns what you do and don't know and tailors the next thing that you see to that information. So every kid gets their own specific, personalized lesson that plays to their preferences and strengths and even just which games they think are the most fun. With the little kids, they might not like pirates as much as pixies. And the result is, in theory, a whole curriculum that is totally custom to every child. We envisioned a learning experience that was age and grade agnostic so that we don't don't make judgments about what a child should know by a certain time. We just evaluate what a child is ready to learn next. And this idea of self-directed learning is a really common thread in pretty much every education technology company that I read about for this episode. The idea that we should all be able to follow and build our own curriculum, our own learning experiences based on our interests and our curiosity. You know, we imagine a future where learning is something that happens throughout your life so that it's not confined to those four years when you're in an institution or, you know, the 12 years when you're in um, uh primary and secondary school. That's Julia Stiglitz. She's the head of business development for a company called Coursera. Now, you might have heard of Coursera. You might have taken a course on Coursera. It's this website where you can take college classes from institutions all over the place. I, myself, have attempted several Coursera courses in my life, but I will admit that I have never finished one. Coursera was started four and a half years ago by a computer science professor at Stanford who basically just put his machine learning course up online for anybody to see, and 100,000 people signed up. So he thought maybe he was onto something. Today, there are hundreds of courses that you can take online with Coursera, and they're not just computer science classes. Um, so one of the, you know, a really excellent course is a course from University of Pennsylvania on modern poetry. Um, There's a public speaking course from University of Washington where people videotape themselves speaking and then get peer feedback from um, other people in the class on on how they did in in their presentations. Um, There's a songwriting class. There's, you know, really a host, creative writing class from Wesleyan. So in this future where there are no schools, people will be doing things like Dreambox and Coursera to learn whatever it is that they need to learn or want to learn. So instead of having education force-fed to them... Well, right now, I feel like oftentimes a student's engagement and enjoyment in the learning process is secondary. We have to give them the medicine. The medicine tastes bad, but they need the medicine. So we have to make sure they take the medicine. We have a fun, game-based teaching system, and one that changes with the students so that they're never bored or frustrated or behind. And when they're applying for a job, you just, and when you're applying for a job, you just list all of the courses you've taken online. We have a data science specialization from John Hopkins, and um, a lot of people post this on their LinkedIn profile, and often it is 
the top educational experience that they have on their LinkedIn profile before where they went to school, before anything else. And it signals to employers and it signals to the world that they uh, finish this very rigorous curriculum and know this content. And all of this could be really great. The promise of democratized learning opportunity will come into full focus as we build affordable and scalable personalized learning solutions that are accessible regardless of zip code. And when we do that, if we can unlock the learning potential of every child regardless of where they happen to be born, what they look like, what language they speak, we will take a huge step in unleashing their human potential. And I personally believe that that is a pathway to a happier, more tolerant, more peaceful, more sustainable world. But I think you probably know where I'm going here. There are some downsides to getting rid of classrooms. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we lose when we lose schools. But first, a quick break. So today we're talking about a future in which there are no more centralized schools. All learning is done on phones or computers or tablets or whatever future thing we might invent. And this is a future that some people are indeed driving towards. Now, I want to be clear that both Jesse from Dreambox and Julia from Coursera, who we heard from earlier, they don't actually think that we should get rid of schools or teachers. We're going to get to why they think that in a second. But there are actually people working in education technology who do see a future world where schools Schools as we know them are obsolete. In 2013, a guy named Sugata Mitra won the TED Prize, which comes with a pretty nice million-dollar check. He won this prize for work on what he calls a school in the cloud. Mitra founded this organization named Hole in the Wall, where he went around in the slums of India and installed these kiosks that children could use and play with. His whole thesis is that students can be taught by computers on their own time without teachers. And this hole-in-the-wall thing is one of the classic examples that a lot of people working on education apps point to to show that kids don't need teachers to learn. They're going to want to seek out information. You don't have to force them into a tiny room to listen to a boring teacher. Throughout the 20th century, at the very least, there have been lots of imaginations that we would, thanks to machines, be able to sort of radically change what learning teaching and learning looks like. That's Audrey Waters. She runs a website called Hack Education and covers the intersection of education and technology. And so I think a lot of it with the internet is the promise of that, you know, you hear all the time, you can access anything you want online, right? You can ha- we have access to more, no- you know, more information, more knowledge than any time in the past, and an expectation that without the constraints of a formal schooling system that children will all be eager, curious learners who are motivated because of their own their own sort of innate curiosity in learning about the world. And that somehow somehow school stands in the way of students actually learning. And she says that when you look closely at these assumptions, this idea that if you just give people access to all this information, if you just let them have it, that they'll learn, has some holes in it. Like the hole in the wall kiosk, for example. Almost all of the places where these um, computer kiosks were installed are now abandoned. Abandoned and... Um, vandalized. And I think that if, you know, if we, if we actually thought that these were somehow a magic, 
you know, a magic pill, a silver bullet for educating for educating students in a in a better way than the school system, then I think that we would have probably seen a different, a more respectful treatment of these sites. But they've largely been abandoned. And not only have these kiosks largely been abandoned, but when they were there, they weren't serving every kid the same way. It was actually, it was really interesting. Mostly it was older boys who dominated the kiosks. So girls, for example, were excluded from participating on these kiosks. Um, Younger, smaller boys were elbowed away. So that hardly seems like a solution to the future of education, if it's something that really only benefits boys. And this brings us to a question that came up with literally every single person that I talked to for this episode, and that is this question. What is the purpose of school? Why, why do we do this thing where, in the, what it looks like today at least, we gather students of a particular age, right, from the age of 15 through 17, 18, and we mandate, like we actually say, you must, you must go to school. What is the purpose of education? And what, what, what role should it play? There's something very important that happens in a classroom setting when you bring people who live in different towns and different zip codes into the same place. There's something that is added to the social fabric that cannot be achieved when a child, single child sits in front of a single screen. How do we cultivate human beings that have empathy for other human beings? That's part of learning and education. What is the point of learning? What do you get from being in this space outside of those obvious things like academics, critical thinking? You get to network. That last person you just heard is a new person for the episode. Her name is Jade Davis. She's the Associate Director of Digital Learning Projects at LaGuardia Community College in Queens, New York. And she says that it's a mistake to reduce education down to simply, did you get the skills that you need to move on to the next lesson? Or do you have the information you need to perform your job? That just doesn't account for all the things that she sees students coming in looking for. And for me, um, for the students that I work with, which isn't just a problem for community college students, it's a problem for college students everywhere. Everybody's talking about it. Um, For some of the children I was exposed to growing up, the thing that they would be curious about isn't science. It's where am I going to get food? How can I get toilet paper? Oh my gosh, where can I take a shower? And so what we don't realize is that when students come in to learn, They aren't just coming in as a learner, they're coming in as a whole human, and many of those students are facing challenges that make it so that they don't have the space to be curious about the things that the algorithms are trying to measure. Now, these are big picture questions. What is the nature of school? What is the value of different types of curiosity? What does it even mean to learn? How self-driven are children really? But I also want to slow down for a second and talk about some more specific things, like If kids aren't going to school, who is taking care of them? Tons of people rely on school for childcare during the day so that they can go to work. And that never really seems to be addressed in these pictures of the future. Totally. I mean, and I think that that's that's the that's this odd sort of argument, this sort of vision of that. Um, you know, bless their hearts that I think you get from a lot of maybe 20-something um, tech entrepreneurs <laughs> that really just haven't, haven't really thought about, haven't really thought through any, any of the realities themselves. 
And what about all that data that's being collected to create new lessons for your kid? Who has access to that data? Does it go on their permanent record? Is that a good thing? I don't know how much ends up in their permanent school record. And it's a little bit scary to have like kindergartners and first graders using um, adaptive learning things and having all that kept in their record potentially. What this could mean is that kids who maybe don't get the interface or start out on the wrong track could have a much harder time catching up, and that could just follow them throughout their entire educational career. Jade has some experience with this, actually. Um, so, how old are my children? They're seven and nine. Um, they are, they just finished, actually, first and third grade. And we are in the New York City metro area, and we moved here from North Carolina. And when we got here, they were both reading below grade level and sort of underperforming, which was really bad. Um, But one of the things that was going on in North Carolina is very early on in both of their school careers, they switched their homework system from being on paper to being on the computer or tablet. So in North Carolina, Jade's kids were using one of those adaptive learning systems that we talked about before, and it wasn't working for them. But when they moved to New York and started doing their homework on paper again instead of in the app, they caught up. They got up to grade level in like a month and a half. If they had stayed in North Carolina, though, Jade worries that they would have been stuck on the same track forever. You're already in a chain reaction, right? That's sort of what algorithms are. So if this input at the very beginning was bad and you couldn't adapt fast enough for whatever reason, you might get lost. Like they they legitimately thought my son had a learning disability. We had them tested. They didn't know what was going on. And had we not gone out of our way to get testing done and had we not sort of worked with him, especially when we moved to make sure that we repeated testing here and had we not gone out of our way to find things that they wanted to read and worked with them on that, the algorithm that they were on would have said, no, this person is behind grade level. And they're behind grade level. And they're behind grade level. And this made me think about my relationship with school. I was not a great student. Because I was, okay, I still am, pretty ornery. And if I didn't think an assignment was good, I just wouldn't do it. I would just be like, this is stupid. I'm not doing it. And I would fail. I I was the same way um, with multiple choice tests. I thought they were really stupid. And I remember distinctly in third grade being really upset with where all the dots were laying. So I erased all of my answers and did a pattern. And I failed the test. The teacher knew that I knew everything, so it was fine. And my grades were high enough everywhere else that it balanced out. But for students like you and me, (laughs) who are just like, this isn't my thing. I don't like how this is going. We totally be really bad people on the algorithm. So why do so many people seem to want to disrupt? I'm doing finger quotes right now around the word disrupt. Disrupt education. Why is this idea of a school in the cloud or a hole in the wall or a world where students just teach themselves everything they need to know on their own seem to be so trendy right now? Audrey says that it's partially because we don't value teachers. Teaching is a feminized profession. And it's mostly, it has been historically mostly women who've been teachers. And so do we think it's a a valid profession? Do we respect this profession that's dominated by women? Um, I I don't think we do. 
but it also has to do with the rise of tech as this huge and influential sector. So many of the people working as programmers right now in tech didn't learn programming in school because nobody taught programming in school when they were growing up. They taught themselves. There are a lot of people, I think, that are in that work in tech were self-taught. They didn't have opportunities to learn computer science in school. And so they think, here, I know this thing. I know this thing that everyone is talking about as being absolutely crucial to the future of the economy, um, crucial to the future of education, and I did it myself. So schools are... Uh, you know, I think it, it makes it really easy to believe that schools are somehow irrelevant. If the one thing you do, you taught yourself, then sure, everyone in the world must be an autodidact. And it's true. A lot of the programmers at all of these companies are self-taught. But does that necessarily mean that that's what we should all be striving for? I am not so sure about that. Besides, even though many of those people taught themselves the programming skills they needed for their jobs, they still benefited immensely from the schools they went to. Remember, we talked earlier about all of the other skills that schools give you? Yes, you learn things at Harvard and Yale and Princeton. But along with all of that, you get a very, very powerful network of people and connections that get you in the door at powerful companies. For a long time, Google's hiring team was notorious for rejecting applications outright from anyone who didn't have an Ivy League degree. Learning online, those connections, that degree, that pedigree, that all goes away. Simply being in the same room as all of those other people at Princeton, that makes a huge difference. But here's the thing. When people talk about replacing teachers with algorithms and computers, they're not talking about replacing the teachers in extremely expensive prep schools or at Harvard or Princeton. They're talking about replacing teachers in Africa. The whole continent, usually. A lot of these sites don't even get more specific than that. All of Africa. Or in slums in India. There's a, there's, yes, there's a very long history um, of education as a tool to advance sort of the missionary objectives that come from colonization. So a lot of the language, if you actually look at it, will also sort of map onto the way that people talked about how Christianity was going to save people as they were sort of expanding colonial empires. So it'll be like, if we educate them, there will be less multiple births. People won't die in birth as much. There will be less poverty. It's going to fix everything. They will enter the world like the rest of us. Rich kids are not going to be taught by artificial intelligence. It's going to be the poor kids, the kids who are already left behind, the kids who nobody thinks are worth it anyway. This is, this is the future that I fear, that this is one of the futures that I fear, in which actually being in contact with a caring, skilled human teacher will become the privilege of the rich, right? So the poor will get computers, they'll get flashcards. Um, hopefully, you know, hopefully the computers will work. Hopefully they'll have internet access. Um, and that, that having... Um, having attention from a human, having a powerful relationship with a teacher will increasingly become something for the privileged. And this is actually a fear that even the people in education technology companies that I talked to mentioned. Here's Julia from Coursera. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would be the, the most scary part about it is that essentially it would be people's demographics uh, that would determine that would determine um, that would determine who learned uh, what they needed to learn. So you would have families who are really who, who really knew how to play the game and really knew what you needed to do, and they would support their students going through it. And then families um, who are you know have different circumstances wouldn't have that wouldn't have that. 
So it's kind of this weird circle. Education technology can, according to its proponents, democratize education. It can make it cheaper and better and more accessible for everybody. But if you go too far, you actually wind up making everything less fair than it was before. Would you ever like to have a robot teacher? Mm, half and half. Okay, can you tell me more about why or why not? Because I really like my plain teachers, but I would also like a robot teacher because I like robots. What do you like about robots? That they're so cool and they can move on their own. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Would you like to have a robot teacher? Yes! Why? Um, it might be able to, like, um, see what we're really, really good at and what we're not so good at. So, um, like, it would be able to know at the beginning of the year whether to put me in advanced math group or not, and advanced reading group. So a robot would know that right at the beginning of the year? Yeah. Whereas a human teacher might take longer to know that? Yeah, like Miss Bryant. Okay. But I like Miss like Bryant, too. Okay. Thank you. Would you, do you think you'd like to have a robot teacher? Yes. Why? Because it would give me whatever I wanted. Interesting. Um, yes, because he could um, help me get up to your Transformers um, that he, um, that he suits bad guys, yeah, and that he um, drinks coffee, yeah, a robot teacher does. <laughs> Would you like to have a robot teacher? No, because robots, they don't really take care of children's needs. Like in what way? Like a robot probably wouldn't like um it, pro- it probably a robot probably wouldn't be as accommodating as your teacher because teachers actually understand and they actually have bodies and they're not made of just technology yeah but it would kind of be cool <laughs> it would be cool but i really like my teacher do you think you would like having a robot teacher no why not because I like my teacher much better. Well, but if it was a new grade and, you know, your old teacher couldn't be the teacher. And they said, oh, we got a new teacher for you with the robot teacher. Do you think that would be a good teacher? No. No, why not? Because robots aren't sm- very smart. What if it was a smart robot? Oh, no. No, you don't think so? I don't really like robots. Is that your final answer, or would you like to review your choices? That's all for this week's Future. What do you think? Would you let your kids be taught by a robot? There's so much we didn't get to in this episode, so if you go online to flashforwardpod.com, you will see more on education and technology and robots and all of the good stuff that I couldn't squeeze in here from the interviews that I did for this episode. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth, and is part of the Boing Boing podcast family. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Broke for Free. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. 
Special thanks this week to listeners who sent in tape of their kids. That's Ari, David, Kevin, Sharon, Beth, Kim, and Nav. Your kids and you are awesome. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas, so keep sending them. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email us at info at flashforwardpod.com. If you're right, I will send you something cool. Oh, and some of you have asked what these references are that I'm talking about. Okay, so I'm going to throw you a bone. If you go to flashforwardpod.com slash references, you will see a list of past hidden gems from season one, so you can see what you should be looking for. We are coming up on the end of season two of Flash Forward. This is episode 16. There will be 20 episodes. There are four episodes left. And if you want to make sure that season three happens, now would be a great time to donate. You can go to flashforwardpod.com slash donate to see all of the different ways that you can give to the show. You can buy merch. There's Patreon. Or you can just give a one-time donation. Whatever you can squeeze. I would really appreciate it. And thank you so much again to all the people who are already donating. I know that not everyone can squeeze a financial donation, and I totally understand. If that is you, there are still ways that you can help make Flash Forward happen. You can leave us a nice review on iTunes. That would be awesome. And you can tell your friends about the show. I know that sounds silly, but it actually really does help because the way that I get paid on ads is per listener. So the more people who listen, the more money I make, which means I get to keep doing the show. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next week, and we'll travel to a new one. <laughs> 